Oh, we're up to 20 people, so do, should, should we make a start? Yeah, that's quick, yeah. isn't it? Let's go. Yeah. Let's get going. Um, so, episode 35, uh, delighted to welcome uh, Mr. Ryan McCallum, paediatric surgeon from uh, London. Um, privately works on Harley Street, as I know, because send, I'm, I'm sending in people. But uh, remind me where you work in your NHS, both West Mid and... Hong yeah, so I'm at West, West Middlesex uh, Hospital in West London, and uh, I divide the other half of the week in um, Hackney in East London, so Homerton Hospital. And then privately, uh, yeah, as you said, Holly Street. Excellent. So thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Pleasure. You're busy. You've, you've come off the back of like a... I've walked off the golf course to do this. You've oh, I can tell. A, you've, <laughs> you've come off the back of like a 15-hour clinic. That just shows yeah. the, the, work ethic, the work ethic differences between the two of us. But yeah, we, we, we do appreciate your time. And, and the topic looks like, it's, looks like it's a pretty... Uh, one that's generated a lot of interest, and that is x-rays. Uh, we titled it X-ray Interpretation, but actually that's just going to be a small part of it because a lot of the questions that came in were more about the kind of lead up to to, to X-rays. So I've, I've organised them into what I think is a reasonable, logical order. And um, we'll just run through them. And obviously as, as questions come in, if questions come in, Craig will pitch in um, when appropriate. Uh, so we thought we'd kick off. Um, obviously, I know your, your answer here will, will be with respect to the UK. Uh, Craig can yeah. ask you. There's another Australia, but with respect to podiatrists, not not podiatric surgeons, but podiatrists mm-hmm. um, and X-ray requesting X-ray or you know ordering, um, how much do you think we're utilising this? And, and if so, do you think it's not enough or too much? Um, I suppose it depends on people's general area of practice. I mean, I think those who are working within diabetes probably should be using it a reasonable amount, or at least be exposed to other people. So working in an MDT. Uh, certainly in our diabetic MDT, there's a massive part of it is radiology. So uh, maybe not necessarily directly using it, but they, they should certainly be exposed. I'm not entirely sure about MSK. I mean, you would probably be able to tell me more more than I would know, but I, I think it's possibly underutilized because, you know, there are many things that can be taken from x-rays um, that will certainly guide towards certain diagnoses. Um, and then we got the right diagnosis, then a treatment option is always easier to pick, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a really common question that came in off the back of this is, is how do we get started? As podiatrists, how do we get started in, in, in the whole world of x-ray? I mean, we, we don't have to go into the real depth of, of things like um, but clearly we can't just start ordering. There's, there's, a, there's a process, there's, there's yeah. uh, some training we have to do. You briefly sort of summarise it for us. Yeah, well, again, it'll be easier for some people more than others, depending on your setting of where you work. Uh, certainly, Irma is is mandatory. If you're going to start requesting X-rays, then you have to have an Irma certificate. Uh, I know some of the MSC programs have included that, the surgical ones anyway, have included that uh, within their programs. Um, hospitals will run Irma courses, so we have a, an intern that works with us, and he was able to run through his Irma training through in-house. So I, I think people can always approach their local trust, the local hospitals, and just ask the radiology departments, you know, do you run an armor program? Because hospitals are always happy to make money. And if they're charging 100 pounds or 150, I have no idea what it costs. But um, hospitals, I'm sure, would be more than happy to have external people coming in and uh, attempt their courses because as I said, it makes them money. Once you have an armor certificate, then it, I guess it's a case of building relationships and building bridges towards either a private hospital who is able to offer the service or even NHS trusts 
Um, if you uh, liaise with them and you prove that you've got their certification, you know, there's no reason why they, they shouldn't let you use their services as long as you're you know, using it responsibly. Yeah. And, and talk to me quickly about Irma, really quickly. Is it a, you got, you got your certification, you, you're good to go forever, or is it like a, a, a life support where there's annual, an annual sort of update? How does that work sort of long, long term? It's been so long since I did my Irma, but I, I think, to my knowledge, you've got it once and then, and then and that's it, you've got it. Uh, I always took Irma as more of a, I suppose, proof that you appreciate the, uh, you know, the potential hazards of diagnostic imaging or using them, essentially using the services appropriately. Um, I don't think it's anything that you need to update. And if you do, I could find myself in a bit of hot water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I might have stitched you up there by accident. Yeah, I hope you haven't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we decide we're going we're gonna to get stuck into this, whether it be MSK, mm-hmm. diabetes. We, we go through the appropriate certification, Irma. We uh, we start a day in clinic and we got patients that are coming in. Yeah. What sort of what's, what's our process of clinical reasoning? What, what sort of things are coming into mind when we're thinking about requesting an X-ray? I guess when when is requesting an X-ray appropriate? Whether we're talking pathologies, uh, particular pathologies, or, or certain timelines of, of when someone presents with a two-day-old problem versus a two-year-old problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, my practice is probably a bit different to others in that I'm in purely surgical practice. So I use them an awful lot. There wouldn't be too many patients that I would see who wouldn't get an X-ray, but as far as indications and when you would request them, I think it has to be when it's going to have the potential to change your management of the patient. So as I mentioned earlier, starting off with a clear diagnosis is obviously critical regardless of the area of specialty you work in. Um, So I suppose if there's any uncertainty over a diagnosis, an x-ray is not a bad place to start. I mean, there will be obviously pathologies, which x-ray is totally uh, useless for soft tissue pathologies in particular. But if there are queries over, as for an example, uh, a lesser MTP joint pain as opposed to a potential neuroma, there are certainly clues that you'll pick up from an x-ray, potential clues that will guide you one way or the other. Um, it's readily available. It's very, very cheap. And um, I, I, I use it, certainly use it a lot. Um, and not every patient I x-ray goes for surgery. So I would use it primarily to help establish a diagnosis. But what it's not really used for, is not indicated for, is just widespread, well, I'll just get an x-ray and see what's there. That's not really helpful. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Um, there, was a, there was a meme that went around a while ago. Of, <clears throat> it was a Prince William, a photo of him taken from two angles. And he had his yeah. hand in the air from one angle. It looked a bit rude. And it didn't, and it, uh, it sort of spread across the world of radiology as the sort of stressing the importance of two views. Um, yeah. Do we always take two views for every pathology? Are there two? Is it, do you decide on the views per pathology? What's the thought process there? Yeah, I mean, um, two views is minimum of two views is absolutely essential. Um, and I explain to patients and students that, you know, one X-ray image is no different to looking at a loaf of bread from one side. You've no idea what's going on anywhere else, whether there's mold on the other side or whether it's, you know, um, or whatever. Um, so uh, from my point of view, I can't think of too many pathologies that a DP, so a dorsal plantar view, an X-ray taken from the top of the foot and a lateral view, those were going to give you an idea of the vast majority of pathologies. 
strangely enough, where you see an awful lot of people. So, you know, if a GP requests x-rays, for example, they're trying to be helpful, they'll send a patient for x-rays before they see you. It'll be a non-weight-bearing DP and a lot, sorry, an oblique view. And that doesn't really tell me a great deal, to be quite frank. So DP and lateral stand views are almost always the standard x-rays that I'll take. Always weight-bearing. Uh, the only time I don't do weight bearing is if it's post-operative patient and I don't want them to put to the foot of the floor. Um, if it's osteomyelitis, I query osteomyelitis, it doesn't really matter a huge amount. Um, you wouldn't necessarily want them standing on it all so the, the radiologists won't, or radiographers won't let them stand on an x-ray plate if they've got an open wound. Um, but from my point of view, when I'm taking x-rays, it's fractures, sorry, another indication for non-weight bearing would be a fracture. Um, but from my point of view, I'm really quite concerned about alignment and I'll use x-rays a lot for alignment and alignment tells me an awful lot about what's going on with the foot and give an indication to one pathology over another um, and if it's non-weight bearing you can't tell, tell anything about the alignment from a non-weight bearing x-ray so there's a very very small indication for requesting a non-weight bearing x-ray yeah I, I remember seeing someone not 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 that long ago who uh, ended up having a, a fairly nasty Liz Frank injury and uh, it was missed on x-ray because they'd done it non-weight bearing. It was one of the yeah. pathologies that, you know, I yeah. went to A&E, they were worried it was a fracture. So probably by your, by your reasoning there, did the right thing by a non-weight bearing x-ray. Yeah. Didn't but then it gone missed. Up, and then, they, then it's gone missed because it wasn't a weight bearing and it needs to be. Are there any other uh, sort of pathologies where weight bearing would be, be, be really key, a bit like a Liz Frank or... or and doing weight well, certain... Certainly for, for pre-op planning, it's absolutely essential. And as I gave you an example of generally hallux valgus, if a GP sends a patient for a non-weight-bearing x-ray and they've got hallux valgus, you almost always see a degree of metatarsus adductus, and that can vastly change how you approach the foot. Um, then you send them, send them off, get a weight-bearing x-ray, and it looks completely different. So um, certainly pre-op planning, almost always essential that you have a weight-bearing and as a true weight-bearing as you can get it. Yeah. So DP and lateral, easily the most two, the two most common requested. The oblique, um, does it have a place? Is there anything that you would request? Yeah, um, oblique is very good for helping you um, identify a fracture because if you're looking at, for example, a metatarsal fracture, um, it's highly unlikely you're going to see anything significant on a lateral view. Um, and a DP view, as we mentioned, you need two views to look at any particular pathology. So for a fracture, osteomyelitis, where you're looking for a periosteal reaction, where again, on a lateral view, you'll probably not see an awful lot because of superimposition. So fractures and osteomyelitis, I can't think of too many others that I would routinely request an oblique view for. Yeah. Um, I seem to remember a funky view for the sesamoids. Uh, is, it, is it called axial? I can't quite remember. Sorry, and I can't, you've gone quiet. Ian, I can't hear you. Uh, can, you hear, uh, can you hear me now? Am I okay? Mother. Yeah. yeah I, think, I don't know. Can you, hear me right? can you hear me, Ryan? I can, I can, yeah, I can hear you, Craig. Yeah. Ah. Okay. So, so Ian was just asking about what he called the funky view for sesamoids, that the axial view. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, again, there are other views. There are views that I would call fairly unusual. Um, an axial sesamoid view is obviously useful if you're looking for sub-first NTP joint pain and you query a sesamoid fracture. You don't actually always see it, especially if it's fragmented. You'll not always see it on a DP view. Lateral, you'll see nothing. So an axial view for that is fairly useful. There are other, I say, very rare ones you might take, a Harrison Beath view or the ski jumper view if you're maybe looking for a possible subtalar joint coalition. 
Um, but I have to say, I would could probably count in one hand the amount of times I'd request those in the space of six months. Can you hear me now? Am I back? I can, yeah. Oh, great. Sorry. Sorry, no, no idea what happened there. Um, while, while we're talking, while we've touched on things about uh, preoperative x-rays, there was a question mm. that came in about the lines and the angles that you, that you sort of look for. Um, yeah. Two questions, two, two parts to this question. Firstly, are there, are there specific ones you're doing on an almost uh, com, you know, um, regular basis? But the mm. second question was, would you ever do lines and angles in, in the non-surgical setting? you were looking at MSK pathology, for example. Yeah, so I, I, if, probably just to go back a little bit before you're looking at angles and dangles, um, there is a systematic way that you approach looking at any x-ray. Um, and, and most people probably have heard the ABCs. So if you just, if I could just put up a picture here of an x-ray, which has quite a few things going on in it. Um, yeah, if I just bear with me one second here. Everyone loves a picture, That's, this is perfect. Except the ones listening on the podcast, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they can always go back and watch this later on, I suppose. <laughs> so, um, if I just make, I think, can you see this? Is that visible now? Yeah, perfect. That's fine. Okay, yeah. so, so I'll just make it a little bit bigger to take up the full screen. So, if you look at this here x ray, for an example, there's a lot going on here. And if you're trying to interpret this, it's a case of, well, where do I start? Obviously, there is the first met in an unusual position, it's an unusual shape. There's a fracture in the third metatarsal. There's, you know, the toes aren't necessarily rectus. So where, where do you start uh, interpreting or trying to take any useful information from this? And so if you take a systematic approach to looking at an x-ray, it becomes much easier to make sure that you don't miss anything. So rather than getting angles, which is, of course, related to the alignment, it's the first thing you'll do. I would look certainly at so just the ABCs, A being alignment, for those who aren't familiar with this, B is referred to as bones or bone density, which a lot of people assume that B just means bone density. But if you just take bone density, you could certainly lose or miss some uh, valuable information. C is cartilage or joints and S is soft tissue. So uh, this is just a slide I've taken from an old lecture I gave. And obviously, the alignment relates to the position. And obviously, it depends on who you're talking to, but it's really important to keep things simple. So if I speak to a colleague or I ask one of the trainees, you know, tell me about this x-ray, I don't expect them to say off the cuff, oh, this has an intermetatarsal angle of 18 degrees or whatever. I expect them to say that the first metatarsal is deviated in a medial fashion away from the second metatarsal or whatever. So keeping things quite simple. But then you can knuckle down into uh, angles if, if you really want. But what I think is probably more important is just looking at relationships of one bone relative to another. And this slide here shows on the left side a relatively normal foot. And on the right side is a pathological pediatric flat foot. So if you wanted to look at angles, well, yeah, you can measure them. But uh, I personally don't. What I look for is relationships. So I look at the angulation or the direction that the tail is points in. And in a normal foot, it should be relatively similar to the direction that the first metatarsal points in. And obviously in a flat foot, because we know the tail is moves medially and plantar flexes, so... I'll look at the direction of the talus rather than actually measure the angle of the first metatarsal relative to the talus. Whilst it's an angle, it doesn't, the numbers don't really help me a great deal. Um, and then I'll look at the relationship, for example, of the calcaneus and the cuboid. You could measure this. You're looking for your four-foot abduction. So there are more relationships that I'll look at rather than angles. Um, and then on a lateral view, uh, there are similar things. If you look at Mary's line and, again, positional relationships with one thing to another. 
Um, where it does come useful uh, and where you could measure things with regards to, um, oops, where you could look at things um, from an MSK point of view, and I go back to the sort of forefoot discomfort, whether it's an MTP joint pathology or a neuroma. One of the things that I measure a lot of, and anyone who has any forefoot discomfort, I look at the metatarsal parabola angle. So this Essentially, you're drawing a line from the central aspect of the first metatarsal head to the central aspect of the second, and then from the central aspect of the fifth metatarsal head up to the second. And you're looking, on average, for an angle of about 142. And in these cases where the angle is less than 142, it's a fairly high or strong indication that this person is predisposed to overloading the lesser metatarsal phalangeal joints. So if I saw a patient, for example, with a short first metatarsal, and I measured the angle, and it was 133, I'd be highly suggested that this was probably a second MTP joint pain rather than a, say, 2-3 space neuroma. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Interesting. That's not an angle I was familiar with, actually. You referred me a patient about three weeks ago, and you mentioned that in your letter, and I was too embarrassed to ask you what it meant, so I'm glad you touched Oh, really? Now. Oh, sure. <laughs> now, you, I'll put the... now you just embarrassed yourself publicly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, so I'll just for go? those for those who aren't familiar, you know, that's this is the metatarsal parabola angle here. Ah, perfect. Um, and I say I use that a lot for any forefoot discomfort, especially trying to differentiate where it's a query between a two-three space neuroma or second MTP joint synovitis or capsulitis. And that normal, Ryan, that 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 one four two for, yeah. for for a suggestion of normal is that from a big sort of asymptomatic uh, cohort? Is it is it how have they sort of uh, landed on that quite specific number there? Do you know what? I have absolutely no idea. I remember it being one forty two, and I can't remember where I remember it from. But it's a <laughs> it's a reliable one for me. And um, I mean, I think it's these X ray and the angles are indications. They're not, you know, they're not. Um, set in stone because obviously the length of the metatarsals because you're looking at a 2d image is going to change if it's dorsiflexed or plantar flexed because it will look shorter if it's one way or the other so it's a, it's an indication rather than this is definitely overloading of this joint or it's definitely not a joint problem so whilst i pick one for two it's a ballpark figure really yeah okay perfect so Going back to our sort of timeline of people saying, right, we're going to start utilizing this, we're going to get ERMA certified, we're going to decide when x-rays are appropriate with regards yeah. to pathologies, we're going to make sure we get at least two views and, and decide on weight-bearing, non-weight-bearing. The most important thing uh, from what I'm taking from this is the x-ray film comes back to you, and the first thing you do, whether you've been doing this one year or ten years, is your ABCDs. Is that yeah. It's certainly, I mean, I, I don't do it because I've looked at it, I look at X-rays all day long, and I, I think like anything else, if you know what's normal or relatively normal, it's very easy then to see something that's abnormal. So I think when you first start off doing these, it's a great way to make sure you don't miss anything, and then you really fine-tune. And sometimes it's the small things that make big differences. So if you're really systematic about how you approach these in your interpretation, it's great practice for then recognizing what's normal or abnormal, and then it just becomes easier. It becomes second nature. So I'll look at an x-ray and I'll recognize a short first metatarsal straight away or a degree of metaductus or whatever, you know, tailored declination. I don't need to measure them because I see it all day and I know what's abnormal. Um, but it's like anything else. It's not difficult. It's just a case of making yourself very familiar with it, looking at as many as you possibly can, and then you get an appreciation for the differences. Yeah. 
But I would, I mean, all of our trainings are made to go through ABCs from the word go. That's it has to be the best way of making sure that you're picking up everything that you need to pick up on. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Good, good to have a system. Um, Craig, are there any questions came in on that? Well, no, the only, the only question came in was about the um, the Irma regulations, and someone just commented, uh, "What are they?" So let me. So I've just actually, I didn't know what they are either because they're obviously specific to the UK. But I did manage to find the regulations. So it yeah. was Irma was what that was what you what you're referring to and there does seem to be quite a few courses around i just found yeah. this one here available for allied health professionals to do to become familiar with them so um there seems to be plenty there yeah and the guidelines are readily available online as well google them or you'll get the first page you come up on will be the government document of what armor is so it's very easy to find the information yeah, i've posted a link in the in the comments to to the the websites i just showed so so, Craig, quick diver into the, into Australia because I know we have Australian listeners as well. Uh, yeah. Not not always live because it's so early where you are, but we know we know they listen later. Well, actually, um, I'm actually there's quite a few on already. I noticed from Australia, Arthur's there. Isn't it like <laughs> half, half past five where you yeah, are? Twenty, yeah, half past five, yeah, in the morning. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Arthur's the only one I know who sleeps less than you. Actually, um, <laughs> how, how does this? How does the stuff we've talked about differ uh, logistically and, and, and in, in Australia? No, well, I so think you, it, you, it's much more integrated in the undergraduate program. So it's just a pretty much normal accepted part of everyone's practice. Um, some obviously the pod surgeons here are going to be using it like Ryan is. Um, those doing a lot of musculoskeletal are going to be using it. Others are going to be using it less, but it's not um, something you have to get separate, separately sort of certified or, or a course in. It's just a, integrated in the undergraduate program. So, yeah, it's... Really, so new yeah. grads can just can just yeah. get going on it and start yeah. start requesting the new start referring, yeah. Um, okay. Whereas the situation in New Zealand is they can actually own their own machines, or they used to be able to. I think they still can. I'm not sure how many do own them now. And obviously, in the US, they um, X-ray everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or yeah. next to everyone, and I, yeah, I think we can debate the the issues around that, but this is not really the place to do it. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Um, we had another question actually, which came in about uh, about the logistics of this in in private practice. Because we know, <clears throat> excuse me, we know in the UK we've got more people in private practice than, than ever before. I don't know the numbers, but uh, even the people that are working in the health service are often doing some private practice work at, uh, as well. Um, so logistically, mm-hmm. how, how do you? What's the best way to describe how that works for people, Ryan? I mean, do you need to? I know we're lucky in London. We have several uh, imaging centres that we can just send people to and, and yeah. they pay and then the report comes back to us. Is that the case across the country? I mean, you can train across the country and things. Uh, I, I, to be honest, I wouldn't entirely know because I've only ever, since I left Ireland, I've only ever lived in London. But there are private hospitals all over the place and they're only too happy to take money for, for anything they, they can get. So I would be astounded if anyone had their certification and they were refused um, an x-ray service from a private ad said they'd be only too happy to, to take girls. The only thing is that, you know, it's pointlessness. They're going to do it the way you want it done. So if a private hospital, yeah, we'll do, we'll do x-rays, but we're only going to do non-weight bearing x-rays. Well, that's pointless. So if you're going to get them, you need to make sure you get the right ones. Um, okay. But as I say, just approach these hospitals, approach the centers, imaging centers, I say only too happy to, to make money off of patients having uh, diagnostic imaging. 
And do they just send the plain films back to you, or do, do you get the radiologist often reports on them as well? How much weight do you place on? I mean, I'm guessing you as a surgeon will always look at the yeah. films, but is it is it appropriate to to go through this and then just get the get the report back and go on the report? Or what do you think about the balance? Uh, I never I never rely on a report from a radiologist. Uh, or a radiographer, for that example, because a lot of them are reported by radiographers. Because uh, the amount of times I say, or I get a report saying, you know, no bony injuries, no soft tissue, evidence of blah, blah, blah. And you get it back, assuming you're going to see a, a normal x-ray, and it's completely different. They'll miss sesamoid fractures. It basically, if it's not a metatarsal bone, a metatarsal bone that's broken, or a joint that's obliterated with osteoarthritis, they're going to tell you it's relatively normal, and it's not really very helpful. The other thing is, you know, you should be getting the images looking at them and learning from them. That's the, the, great, the great value of getting the pictures. Patients are normally given the pictures on a CD um, or DVD, I don't know what it's called these days, uh, and the report will normally come in writing, but I guess it depends on where you work. Where I work, the x-ray systems are within the building, so they come onto my computer straight away. Um, but I would always encourage people to get the films, study them, look at them, even try and make a report yourself, and then compare it to the report of the radiographer or the radiologist if you... Or of the mind that their their opinion is worth listening to. Yeah, it's very rare you're going to get those, those X-rays that you showed earlier on. It's very rare in a report you're going to get some of those alignment issues reported on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they'll never talk about alignment unless it's yeah. Alexander. And that that's so so crucial. So I, I you know you can rely on the report for some nasty looking lesion, but that's you know yeah. um, that, those alignment issues are never going to be reported. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. So is it fair to say, I mean, obviously, if we're referring to surgeons or other specialists, what we often like to do is know them, having met, met them before, know that we're roughly on the same page, have a relationship, yeah. um, uh, sometimes personal slash professional. Uh, is it less important that we have that relationship with the radiology department? Uh, can we just use any, uh, Adnan Nazir's just commented, Nuffield Health through this. So can we just can we just contact our local Nuffield, don't worry about making a relationship first, just get the films back and then, and then look at ourselves, or do you think that relationship has any value? I, I think it definitely has value. I mean, I, I speak to my MSK really always on a, I wouldn't say a daily basis, but certainly a weekly basis. Not so much about x-rays, but there are occasionally things that creep up, unusual appearance of a periosteal reaction or maybe something like a lesion within a bone. I'm thinking, well, I have no idea what this is and, and I'll always seek their opinion. So, I wouldn't say it's not worthwhile. Uh, it depends on, on how much you intend to tap into their, their, their knowledge and experience, but they have re- very rarely have any idea of foot function. So as Craig said, if you really want to get an idea or an indication as to a particular diagnosis, the alignment is so critical and they'll not tell you anything about that. I would probably say it's more of, of value to um, you know, build a relationship with a colleague or a podiatric surgeon or someone, anyone who looks at x-rays regularly from a foot point of view. And just ask their opinion. I mean, so you and I could pick up the phone to each other at any stage and say, well, listen, what about this? Or what do you think of this? Or I have no idea what this means. What is that? Uh, I think probably someone who appreciates fit function is probably the better person to build a relationship with. But I definitely wouldn't say uh, don't speak to radiologists because as I say, there are times that, you know, despite looking at x-rays day in, day out, I don't have a clue what I'm looking at. Yeah, yeah. Um, any any tips, any, any quick tips for someone first requesting x-rays with regards to the terminology the language to use on the request form because clearly if you what you don't say is something like please x-ray left forefoot you know i I remember being i remember being taught you know it's like it's like 
going into a football stadium and saying, can you take a photo of, of the F block? You, know, you, you want to give the, 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 the most information you can. I mean, do you, I mean how, how deep do you go? Do you give them your queried provisional diagnosis or how do you, how do you sort of actually write on the form? So <clears throat> x-ray is less than ultrasound or MRI, for example, because there's so much to look at, whereas an x-ray, there's, you're looking at a 2D image and it's, it's fairly quick and easy to interpret. So a standard x-ray, for me, I'll say four foot, because I'm not relying on the report. Essentially, I just want the image. So I'll say four foot pain or pain in the region of the second MTP joint as the clinical indication. And then in the, the, the examinations to be requested, I'll just write DP and lateral standing views, left foot or axial sesamoid view or whatever it is you're looking for. Um, so I don't think you need to be too descriptive because ultimately... I'd like to think that is, if people are requesting x-rays, they're going to want to improve their knowledge on them. So uh, they'll take the pictures and they'll look at them themselves. They're not really relying so much on the report. Yeah. A question just came in from, uh, from our friend Sean. Uh, mm-hmm. Not about your wallet, I promise. It says, Ryan, <laughs> can you see an insufficiency fracture on a plain x-ray? Um. Gosh, how often do you see insufficiency fractures in the foot? I can't think the last time I saw one. Um, you, probably similar to a stress fracture. Um, you, you'll not often not see it straight away, but you'll see the periosteal reaction a couple of weeks down the line. I'd imagine it'd be probably similar. I can't remember the last time I saw an insufficiency fracture um, in the foot. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if he doesn't mean stress fracture, but the answer is you can't until it starts yeah. healing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, someone actually did. One of the questions was actually, you know, everyone's fairly familiar now that, that, that x-ray is no good for a stress fracture, but you know, mm. and, until after the fact, what, 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 what's the timeline on that? Six weeks gets thrown around fairly routinely. Is that, is that still supported by data? Mm-hmm. Um, data, I'm not too sure. I mean, it, again, it depends on which bone it is. So for example, if it's a second metatarsal, you quite often see a, a very slight periosteal reaction. I've seen them at two weeks. Yeah. Uh, calcaneus is a little bit different, um, maybe a little bit longer, but certainly a metatarsal stress fracture, two weeks you'd see a very subtle periosteal reaction. And if it's in the region where they've got discomfort, you can be pretty sure that it's probably a stress fracture. Yeah. Um, another question that's coming, um, all, all, all the exciting ones now. The... The relationship between heel pain and heel spurs is, is one a grey, contentious one. I know this Craig will enjoy this one. Um, you know, the, gone are the days, we hope, that everyone that goes to the GP with, with plantar heel pain gets given an X-ray. Uh, mm. But we know that still does go on. Have you noticed any um, any sort of patterns emerge when you've been X-raying calcanei with regard to presence of spurs in the general population but, you know, versus those with heel pain? Craig, do you want to, is that direct? Is that me, Ian, or Craig? Yeah, that's you. I know that this, this is just okay. a topic that Craig hates or loves, loves to hate. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll bite my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, gosh, the last time, well, I'll tell you, the last time I looked at an x-ray for heel pain was yesterday. Um, it was a diabetic patient who had a, a, a pressure sore, and it was requested because it was painful and it might have been infected. And the guy had a massive beak fracture of his calcaneus, but that's kind of fairly unusual. I mean, your normal run-of-the-mill patient who has heel pain, you go to our, certainly West Middlesex Hospital with a GP request for an extra of a heel, they'll refuse it. 
But as far as uh, incidental finds of spurs, I see them all the time. Mm. Yeah, actually, actually, Ian, it's interesting. I mean, you obviously know my views on on heel spurs and heel pain, but it's kind of interesting with what we've been discussing over the last few years about all the nocebic language. You know, when patients just get so fixated, they've got heel pain, they've had an X-ray, there's a spur there, that's it. You know, and you put that in the context of all the nocebic language we've been talking about so much lately. I just you've still got to roll your eyes that the the damage that that has done to them. <laughs> in their belief systems and uh, you know <laughs> yeah here's a question sort of on that on that line Ryan um, sometimes when well when I see a patient in clinic I have to make the you know most of the role that you know, most one of the big decisions I'm often thinking about is whether I think foot orthosis is an appropriate intervention just because of the demographic I'm seeing and sometimes I make a decision it's not a sensible thing to do and that decision has nothing to do with the actual pathology could be a great pathology to respond to that kind of intervention. It's often to do with the person, the patient. It's just that's going to be a terrible idea for various mm. reasons. There, there are various flags being waved around. Like someone you sent me recently. Yeah. Well, <laughs> off, yeah, maybe. Um, do you? Is there a process in your mind with regards to requesting imaging? I guess X-rays. <clears throat> you know, X-ray. As we're talking, that's the topic of this, this mm. episode. But do you ever think to yourself, okay, this person is going to be they're going to hack whatever this whatever we find on the report. They're going to hang on. This is probably mm. a terrible person to to image. Does that ever play play on your mind? I, I'll tell you what. Actually, uh, in those patients, I'll use imaging even more. Um, I'll probably go to MRI because I can say to them, listen, there is nothing there. There's nothing treatable for me. Uh, you know, there's nothing I can do for you. Doesn't mean you don't have pain, but there's no treatable pathology that I can help you with. Goodbye. <laughs> so so I'll, I would use imaging more in those patients. Um, yeah. uh, certain patients will insist on I need another x-ray I need another x-ray and ultimately you have to weigh up well is it ethical to keep sending patients for x-rays but we spoke briefly earlier about radiation I mean the radiation from a foot x-ray it, I think it's something like the equivalent of one day's of natural background radiation in the environment so or smoking one cigarette I, I'm not too worried about the radiation of an x-ray or certainly of a foot um, I suppose you just got to judge it don't you yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the way I've always taught it, I get more radiation flying from Melbourne to Sydney than you do from a foot X-ray. Yeah. But the, <laughs> I, I'm not sure of the wording in the UK regulations, but the, the wording of the regulations are, are over here is that you, you've got to keep it as minimal as possible anyway. So there's yeah. an ethical obligation yeah. to, uh, to to minimise it. But, you know, it's so low anyway. But Yeah. Um, on that note, age, ages of your uh, patients, um, is, there a, is there a bottom age that you, yeah, with regard to radiation exposure in children mm-hmm. is where my mind is with this, is there a bottom age that you think you probably shouldn't be exposing these people unless we really, unless this x-ray is really going to change management? I, I think it, it depends on the, the pathology, really. I think, um, I mean, I don't see infants, very rarely I'd see an infant and Many infants have a pathology that you need to x-ray for. I would x-ray, I mean, I'd be x-raying because of surgical planning and ultimately for the sake of one, uh, the radiation of one x-ray, I want to get the operation right. I want to get the diagnosis right. I want to pick the right procedure. And I think taking the x-ray in a child is, oh, I think if you have to do it, you have to do it. And the importance of getting it right hugely outweighs the radiation that they're going to get from it. Yeah, I was just, I was trying for a moment to think of the word. It's a LARA, A-L-A-R-A, as low as reasonably achievable is the 
Yeah, I've said that. Is, is that is that principle of, of minimising the dose? Um, Sean's just added an additional comment, I think just off the back of yeah. his previous question about insufficiency fracture. He was referred a patient, young footballer, uh, a fifth metatarsal pain, orthopaedics, said it was an insufficiency fracture. Uh, he was you know, a bit confused because they just said that off the back of a plain x-ray. Does that sound, uh, does that give you any more information to answer his previous question or? Oh, so they probably got it wrong. That's it. It could be a fracture, but <laughs> yeah, it could be. A, it, it could certainly be a fracture, but I wouldn't say it's an insufficiency fracture. I've never heard one so, in a, in a, a teenager. Terminal, a terminology uh, difference between orthopedics and perhaps that. Um, questions just coming from Andrea. Um, how soon do you feel you can confirm osteomyelitis on X-ray? We have debates when we should re-X-ray when we suspect and treat, but not seen initially after three weeks, but need confirmation for continued. I've probably read that terribly big, but let's just go with that. How soon do you think you can confirm osteomyelitis on X-ray? Um, well, it's a long way before you can confirm it, before you start to suspect it. I mean, you've got to remember X-rays lag behind by about two weeks. So what you're looking at in the plain film is not, you know, it's not exactly how it is on the day. Uh, I think if you've got a suspicion that there is osteomyelitis, you X-ray it. If there are signs consistent with OM, then well, you act upon that. If there's nothing on it, then a serial X-ray after another two weeks is probably the standard approach that we would take with our diabetic uh, MDT. Uh, the radio, uh, radiologist would almost always say standard uh, serial X-ray after another two weeks if you're not too sure. I'm not sure if I've um, answered the question, but... It's... I don't think I read the question very well, but it's actually quite a long sentence with, and I couldn't quite work out how to punctuate it. So it's probably my fault, but yeah, I'm sure that's fine. Um, question, you, when, you, when you request imaging, you often obviously have a high sort of index of suspicion for something already because you know, mm-hmm. you've know you taken the history, you've assessed the patient. You're not just, like, as you said, you're not just saying, let's have an X-ray to give us all the answers. Do you ever get really, really surprised with the re- result? Does it, does it, I'm sure it correlates quite highly. You know, what you expect is often what, what comes back, but can you think of a time when something really sort of threw you a curveball and you think, blindly, I, I can't believe how much this X-ray has now changed the direction I'm going to take this? I, I think the prevalence of mid-fit osteoarthritis is really high. And for example, if someone comes in with a painful bunion, uh, certainly if it's a significant uh, deformity, you quite often see adjacent second MC joint away with it. And um, that's probably something that changes the plan because you talk about you talk to someone potentially about a first met osteotomy or a first metatarsocaneiform fusion, and in my practice, these patients wait burst straight away on them. If they've got concurrent second MC joint OA, well, if you lock up the first MC joint, well, the second MC joint might have to work harder, and then that becomes symptomatic. So you've talked to them about a relatively straightforward recovery, and then now you're talking about having a fusion midfoot joint that renders them non-weight bearing for a further two months and. Um, I would say that's probably the thing that creeps up most often that's potentially unexpected and then you come across it. But now x-rays, as I said before, you request them normally for specific reasons. It's kind of unusual that something would creep up. Um, Maybe a benign bone cyst that you might see, but it's not necessarily something you're going to act upon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, It's just a question Um, here. Sorry, just a question here from Adnan about doing, uh, it it feeds on the, the radiation exposure, but would you go for a full, full or full, full lower body X-ray and a leg length discrepancy, um, which is an interesting um, one, because yeah. you're exposing radiation to a part of the body that you really do need to apply that Alara principle. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Um, do you know what? I have no idea. I don't really do any MSK work, so not, you know, I'm not. Ian would maybe be in a better position to say how how, how important that would be. I don't really. I don't do well, any I, MSK I, I work. I would. I would have think. I don't know about now, but in the past, chiropractors used to do that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I it leads into that. What's the benefit versus the cost and cost in yeah. terms of dollars and cost in terms of radiation exposure versus, you know, is it going to change your treatment? I mean, if the, you can determine leg link differences without x-rays. Um, so it throws up a whole lot of issues there. But yeah, it's, we, I, I think times we're, sorry. And I think times where it might be relevant, certainly in, in orthopedics, they will do it if they're going to perform a lengthening procedure. So they would want to know how much they need to lengthen. But I think, no, I've never done it. Uh, certainly, I've never. No, same. I, I never, never see these. And Adnan mentioned there's a place on Harley Street that's doing this uh, called the European Scanning Centre. Not familiar with them? Are you familiar with them? Not familiar with it. No. No, no me neither. Um, who do you use in London for your uh, X-rays? Do you do you send them to private hospitals? Do you use Vista Diagnostics or London? Um, well, the, the the clinic I work in has an X-ray machine there, so. Oh, you got it in house. Okay. They've got it in house. Yeah. And do you receive, could someone, could a podiatrist in London who's got their EMA send them to you? Would you, you have to, your clinic happy to take people's money in that regard? Or? Uh, I would imagine so. They'll, like I said, these private hospitals will pretty much do anything to get money. So um, <laughs> I, I'll probably need, I need to ask, but I, I would be surprised if they rejected it. As long as it came, you know, you might have to go and, and meet the, the managing team from the hospital to say, listen, I, I need this. Can, is this a service that you can provide me? And like I said, they will. Well, normally bend over backwards to get your money. Yeah, yeah but it does, it does it does raise the point about you know. I just noticed that just literally two hundred meters from where I live, there's a new radiology clinic opening up. You know, there's more and more of them opening up around here. But mm-hmm. I suspect you, you're better off dealing with one that's used to dealing with podiatrists and this kind of information yeah. we're after. Yeah. Which in your the example you're giving there would be a perfect one that would you know they, they would be good to work with. Yeah, yeah. It's like I said earlier, there's no point in sending someone for an x-ray if they're not going to take the x-rays the way you want them to be taken because it's just a waste of everyone's time, really. Uh, my approach to this, as you well know, has always been to, rather than be the person that's desperate to send for x-ray and come back to me, I always prefer to send to people like you. I mean, there mm-hmm. is that debate, isn't there, in private practice? Um, what, what should we do? I mean, what should we skill ourselves up and get the Irma and request them ourselves or should we build relationships with, with the likes of yourself and refer to you and let you do all the, all the, all the hard work? Uh, you know, what do you think as, a, as an overall profession? Where, what do you think is uh, most appropriate? Uh, uh, I would the individual? Lo- yeah, well, I would love it if we were actually, like Craig said, that it was built into the undergrad system because it's such a valuable tool and it's a bit like local anaesthetic. I'm amazed that, how many people don't use it just in regular practice because it can help in so many different ways. And I think ultimately, for example, if I can give an example, not that you've done this, but if you were going to send me a patient who came to see you with a bunion and you said, well, you need surgery and you requested the x-rays, I'd be thinking, well, I'm not really sure why Ian's requesting because what's he going to do with them or is he requesting the right ones? I'm, I'm using that as an example. I know you've never done that, but <laughs> yeah, just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, just to clarify. Yeah. So I think if you, I think if you're going to request them, it needs to be something you're going to act upon. So not necessarily a pre-operative X-ray. I'll do that just to save some time. It doesn't always work, to be quite frank. The intentions are yeah. good, but it doesn't always work. But I think certainly if people are trying to use it in MSK practice, would we'll, you know fire away, get the X-rays, uh, and, and learn from them. Yeah, because the more you do, like I said, the, the more you do and the more you look at, the better you get at it. 
Yeah. Andrea's just asked a question. I suspect she has only joined the, the, the episode sort of halfway in because I think we touched on this earlier. She said, do you think it's essential to view the x-rays yourself? I order them regularly, but I can't view them, so I have to rely on the report, the report which can take some time to receive. I mean, mm. I think we pretty much covered that about. Yeah, it's essential. I would, yeah. I would start yeah. order, ordering the x-ray somewhere else so you get the x-ray. I, I would. I would. Yeah. Or speak to them and find out why you can't get them. Um. But basically, but get, essential. Eyes on, get eyes on that film. Yeah, yeah, it's essential. Yeah. Perfect. Any other questions coming, Craig? All of mine. No, that, I've that's, ticked that's off, I've ticked pre- off my list. No, that's pretty much all. Um, right. Th- anything else? I, I know you teach this a lot. Um, yeah. At, at sort of uh, undergrad, postgrad, all, all levels uh, to, to the to the surgical, the surgical MSCs. Um, is there anything we haven't covered that if you were doing a, a sort of a lecture on this that you, you'd really want to impress upon the on, on the students? Is there anything else that you think we really need to sort of touch on before we wrap things up? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, as I've mentioned to you before, x-rays tell a story. So there's always something you can tell about this foot by looking at an x-ray before you've even seen the patient. And I think, um, I just try and get into my little um, slides here, try and find an example of, an x-ray which tells a bit of a story. Um, there are always things that you can pick up. Uh, sorry, bear with me for two seconds. Um, maybe I haven't got what I thought I had. Um, sorry about that. Um, there, so there's some, there are relationships between, for example, Halex valgus, second MTP joint overload. You know, you're looking at the thickness of the cortices of the metatarsals. You can tell potentially where an overloading site maybe. But ultimately, if you're going to try and learn to look at x-rays, it's important to learn the terminology as well and not just say, well, the bone there is wider than it is over there. Learn the correct terminology. Um, and that way, when you potentially go to speak to a radiologist, you know, it sounds like you know what you're talking about and they're much more likely to give you their time if, you th- if they think that you know, you're not just relying on them completely to give you all the answers. Uh, so terminology is a big thing, and it, it's something that people struggle with a lot. Uh, well, I say they struggle a lot, but the terminology that I hear is normally when we put our trainees under pressure and grill them to present an x-ray, so the pressure <laughs> element maybe uh, plays a bit of a factor there. But, um, no, I think terminology is really, really important, and I, when I lecture to the undergrads, it's, it's, it's certainly an area that I focus on to make sure that they're describing x-rays in, in the correct manner. So, any key papers in that regard? Any, any, um, you know, someone says, okay, I really want to. After watching this, I want to bone up on my terminology. I want to get yeah. up to speed. Well, where do they go for this? A, a, a plain a, a, a radiology textbook because it doesn't change. This is something that hasn't changed for how many years? So, mm. terminology, terminology now is the same as what it was fifty years ago. Um, so, it's not really a case of needing to go out and find the most relevant papers or find the landmark papers. Because this is all written down in black and white in the textbooks, it's very, very easy to come across and find them. Perfect. So just pick up a book and you get, and you're, you're halfway there. Yeah, and you read through it, and you know, and it, and it's the same thing. It's the same descriptions, time and time again. So it's not like it's you're learning a new language. It's the same words apply for many different X-rays, and it's just descriptors, really. Great. Great. Now I, I can I can understand the need for plain X-rays and surgical cases, but given we've got ultrasound, MRI. Of all these advanced imaging, hmm. why bother with a plain X-ray? Yeah, very good question. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but just yeah. You know, you, uh, 
Well, I, certainly I think one of the most useful things about a plain X-ray is the fact that it's repeatable and you can use it as a landmark. Whereas if you have an ultrasound scan, well, I don't do, personally don't do any ultrasound, but if I can ultrasound report, that's great. But if someone else did the scan, they might have reported differently. Whereas I could send you, Craig, an X-ray from London to Australia and we're looking at exactly the same thing. So it's it's essentially transferable if you want to use it as a baseline. As long as it's weight-bearing, you can use it to compare pre-post, uh, sorry, a pre and post-treatment or you know, monitor the progression of osteomyelitis or monitor the progression of a bone lesion. So I think it's they're great because hey, they're quick and easy to do. They're very cheap. Um, but more importantly, they're, they're you know they're repeatable and they're excellent uses baselines. Yeah, sure. Now Sean's just come back and asked a question about hard versus soft X-rays and what are they mm. used for. Um, do you know what I've? Uh, I just expect an X-ray to be in the middle, and I like it a bit to be in the middle. And if it's not, I'll send them back to get it redone. Hard X-rays are. I don't use them for absolutely anything. I don't use. Occasionally, I'll use soft X-rays to look electronically because you can make an x-ray softer or harder it's useful to look at periosteal reactions and things but harder x hard x-rays are just a a bright white light shining in my face and really no benefit to me though i don't I'm not sure what they would be used for yeah. people that aren't familiar with hard versus soft uh, just it's just like the contrast on your tv is it um so essentially to go to a little bit into the basics of how the x-ray works you're looking at um an x-ray plate then the object is between the plate and the x-ray beam. So the harder a material, the more x-rays it absorbs. So metal, for example, absorbs all x-rays and it becomes out as bright white. Air or, or air is, absorbs very little, so it comes back as very dark gray or black. So if you have a hard x-ray, essentially it's had more x-rays fired out, more has been absorbed, and it comes out as whiter, whereas a soft one will look almost like osteopenia. It will be fairly, everything will look fairly dark. But 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 having said that, it's it's become a great lost art. I remember doing a oh god in the in the early eighties a radiology course on using plain X rays for soft tissues, and it was the the guy that ran the course. His skills were just extraordinary, Mm. and it it has become a lost art with plain X rays to to actually adjust all those features to look at things very very differently. Yeah. And it's become an even greater lost art, given we now have diagnostic ultrasound and MRI and, and, and stuff like that. But I, I remember looking at some of these soft tissue x-rays in the foot in yeah. the 80s, and it was the, the the guy behind it, and I've forgotten his name. He has a book on it, but it's well out of print now. Yeah, I suppose um, the, the, the emergence of the more advanced techniques has probably meant that it's less necessary, I suppose, but... Uh, my x-rays generally speaking they all come back the same way and uh, you know electronically you can always modify to make them brighter or darker but i don't do a huge amount other than for maybe fractures or periosteal reaction for osteomyelitis or something um last question i don't know if it's the lighting in your room i know you've recently been on holiday but i was under the impression that irish men didn't suntan you look quite bronzed there. I'm very, it's golden bronze, you're right, but it's also, <laughs> I'm also a bit red because my flat is about 45 degrees and I'm sweat, <laughs> I sweat like a pig, so there's probably an element of red, redness in there as well. <laughs> I can assure you it's not pressure or an embarrassment. 
<laughs> I know you're too cool for that. I've seen you in action. Um, Craig, we are at, oh, that's, that's know, probably that, a good time. You, good time to finish yeah. on. Um, we, we have had a lot of people on live during this episode watching, so that that's good to see. For those that joined late, it will be on Facebook. Come back in about ten minutes. We'll have it up on YouTube later on today. And for those who haven't noticed, it's now um, as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Anchor FM. So that will be there later on today as well. So thanks, Ryan. It's been uh, thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. No problem.